according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We've got three outlines to run through in chapter 4. So uh, that should be tonight, Sunday, and Wednesday. And that uh, could conceivably then get us ready to start Colossians on uh, Potluck Sunday then on the, on the 30th. But stay tuned because we'll see how far we get tonight. This first part of chapter 4 is actually the longest of the sections that we're dealing with. So as we urge Yodia and Syneche to live in harmony in the Lord. God is spirit, he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So let's take time for a moment of silent prayer and ask our Father to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We ask for your faithfulness to shine forth once again, and it always does, Father. You can never stop being faithful. And you are so faithful. You're the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit that opens the eyes of our understanding, that uh, leads us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So, Father, uh, take us into your truth tonight. Feed us and teach us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we did have a couple of questions from last week, and we want to get right to those and then any other new questions that we may have at this time. Um, I don't know that I have any more answers than I had last week, but I've been thinking a lot about Matthew 6.13 and uh, lead us not into temptation because uh, we know that he, he never tempts us. And some of the interesting things I've been reading uh, from A.T. Robertson, some other Greek scholars, um, related to... Um, do I have a note on that? Maybe I don't. Um, but the idea of not only leading into, but uh, leading and abandoning us there, like dropping us off there, which of course he never will do, that, uh, that he, with, when he does permit the testing, he permits, he provides the way of escape, he provides the way out. And so we might think of that lead us not into as a, as a don't lead us there and leave us there kind of abandonment. Because then it follows up with, but deliver us out of uh, or away from the evil one. And so uh, I think that's, there's a lot of, of, of uh, I think that explanation is helpful. And it's one I'm going to continue to be chewing on. I'm not saying I'm locked in on it yet. And then the other question from Genesis about uh, why is it Adama and not Eretz? I don't know that I'll ever have an answer to that because why questions are hard to answer anyway. Um, but I did find a nice article by Girdlestone uh, on the different words for earth and heaven. And uh, Girdlestone did a book similar to Trench. Uh, R.C. Trench did one on synonyms of the Greek New Testament. Well, Girdlestone has the Hebrew equivalent of the synonyms of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so uh, chapter 23 of, of his text uh, centers on the earth, the world, and heaven. And this is where he'll go into a discussion on Sade, uh, Eretz, and Adama. And uh, it's pretty lengthy and uh, very comprehensive. I don't know how much of it I really you know, uh, follow or buy into because in so many cases the terms are used interchangeably. And when they're used interchangeably we want to relax about it. But when they're not used interchangeably, when, when there's a specific reason. So in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's Eretz. But then in you, all the nations of the earth, that's Adama. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so why is it that it's Adama there and not Eretz like it was in Genesis 1-1? So um, 
anyway, I'm still chewing on that. Don't have uh, any more answers tonight than I had last week, but uh, appreciate the question. And I don't want you to to uh, become resistant to asking questions just because I failed so miserably in uh, in answering many of them. I want to keep the questions coming because uh, that means you're thinking. That means I'm thinking, and we're we're goading each other to thinking, and we're about to enter into a text in Hebrews 10 that specifically commands us to goad one another. And uh, that's what we should be doing. So I appreciate that. I'm going to leave these uh, notes uh, in my note file, uh, the Adama and Eretz note, and also the uh, lead us not into temptation note. So that way they'll keep coming back and reminding me from time to time. All right. Other questions. New business then. That clears the deck on old business. Randy, we'll get you, we'll lead off with you again. You're always a great leadoff hitter because it's a solid single every time and you get on base. It's your uh, my question is Deuteronomy 32.8. Uh, the last part of the verse there, a lot of lesser translations uh, is all, are all over the place like Young's or ESV and some of those others that are not as good as NASB or whatever. Mm-hmm. However, my question right there at the end of it, it says, um, according to the number of the children of Israel, but the Septuagint says angels of God, and the Masoretic text says children of Israel. But all throughout the rest of the chapter, they're talking about uh, verse 12, foreign gods, verse 16, strange gods, mm-hmm. verse 21, non-gods. Mm-hmm. But why all the discrepancy between all those, why the diversity for 12, 8 there at the end? Yeah, it's uh, just all over. the question is, is the manuscript, is it B'nai Ha-Israel? sons of Israel, or is it B'nai HaElohim, the sons of God? And I believe it should be sons of God. And I believe that it's a corruption in the Masoretic tradition whereby they changed it from Elohim to Yisrael in, uh, in that. So um, the, where am I looking at here? Verse 8, like you say, I think, so yeah, there's B'nai Yisrael right there. But you'll notice that you've got uh, footnote D there and footnote D sends you to the apparatus and shows you the variant readings, shows you the alternative text. And the Septuagint, not just the Septuagint, but also the Syriac and uh, other translations are all rendering it as B'nai Elim, B'nai Elohim. So there's your B'nai Elim right there, and here's your B'nai El right there. And so I think between, and it's, it's Old Testament uh, text criticism is a lot harder than New Testament text criticism, but you still have other texts that you can look at, including the Targums. Those are Aramaic paraphrases of the Hebrew Old Testament, and in particular the Pentateuch. And so you've got an Aramaic paraphrase and commentary on the Pentateuch. And based upon the Targums, you can, you can recreate what, what the original text said because that's what they're commenting on. See, uh, But no, I think the better text is that when he... So when you go to Genesis 10 and you, and you look at the Table of Nations... Uh, humanity is divided into three broad divisions, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And then in those three broad divisions, there is a total of 70 subdivisions between Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And you have 70 classifications of of humanity. And um, on that basis, I think, uh, some of the Hebrew scribes redid the the B'nai Elohim as B'nai Yisrael, because Israel also had 70 divisions. When Moses needed help and they appointed elders, they appointed 70 elders from the 12 tribes. And so there is a correspondence of 70 to 70 between the, the clans of Israel and the, and the Gentile nations. But 
I believe there's also a correspondence with the angels, with the sons of God, the B'nai HaElohim. And the 70 divisions of those angels then makes more sense to me because when I read Daniel 10 and I read about the angels that have supervision over different countries, the prince of Greece, the prince of Babylon, the prince of Persia, for example, those are angelic watchers for those nations. So uh, I believe the better text, in, better manuscripts have um, sons of God there rather than sons of Israel. Well, since you mentioned those 70, at the end of Luke, I'm sorry, I don't have the verse right now, oh, when you mentioned the 70, mm-hmm. and he sends out, uh, Jesus sends out 70 disciples. And I've seen people make the the reach mm-hmm. uh, that, that, it, that it was, <laughs> I think I was guilty of it, but... Uh. Uh, is that uh, any any relation to because it was unique? It was a unique number. It was pretty unique, and it was a, it was a larger number than the twelve. Of course, one of his twelve was an unbeliever, so that's kind of a bummer. But uh, yeah, the seventy he sent out, and he sent them out two by two into thirty five pairs throughout. And uh, and there's many many legends about those seventy, and everybody from Barnabas to everybody you can name in the Old New Testament, they they'll, they'll say, oh well, he he was one of the seventy, you know, just because it seems cool to to guess that, but. There's no proof of any of that. We don't know who those 70 were. And I don't think they're connected to the tribal clans as it relates to that. Uh-huh. Yeah, this uh, Deuteronomy 32, uh, Michael Heiser writes a lot about this in his uh, Divine Council material, uh, how the sons of God are angelic beings and how they are structured in, in different ranks and things, combines it with Psalm 82 uh, as the Divine Council and other passages there. So it's an uh, it's, uh, it's excellent text. I appreciate you bringing that up. All right, other passages tonight or other questions tonight? Yes, no? Right, principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities. Jesus is, is over them. Ephesians 6 talks about our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, principalities, and powers. Yeah. All right, well then, thank you for running the microphone. Let's look at Philippians 4. As far as chapter 4 goes, here's our breakdown. Um, verses 1 through 9, 10 through 19, and then 20 through 23. And we'll uh, cover that. Like I say, it could be tonight, Sunday morning, Wednesday night. Uh, and then uh, we'll be prepped for Colossians for the, the Sunday after that. Uh, but that's ambitious because that means we've got to get through 1 through 9 tonight. And that's the longest outline of anything we've done in this book. So um, chapter 4 begins with practical applications that rapture reflection should prompt in the life of every church member. And, and I think the, the message here is bigger than just why can't you get along. I think it's, it comes in the consequence of the rapture doctrine of chapter 3. So that given how imminent the rapture is, why can't you get along, right? Given how imminent the rapture is, that it could be now, the time is just so short. And these, uh, these, these grudges that we bear against other human beings, it's just, there's no time for that. There's no place for that. There's no calling for that. So um, practical applications that rapture reflection should prompt in the life of every church member. When it says, therefore, that's in, that carries with it the full weight of the rapture doctrine from chapter 3. Then in verses 10 through 19, one final item Paul mentions prior to closing this epistle is the grace financial provision he appreciated from the Philippian saints that Epaphroditus was the courier that brought funds from Philippi and uh, the, the finances then that were a blessing to the Apostle Paul that he, uh, he appreciated and he communicated that in, uh, in verses 10 through 19. And then the epistle closes 
with one of the shortest greetings and doxologies of any Pauline text. And uh, that's verses 20 through 23 that we had not that long ago. Uh, but it is, um, I think, significant that we deal with with those issues there. So that's what we're going to be covering tonight, Sunday and Wednesday, a week from tonight. Paul begins this epistle's conclusion with the tenderest address given to any local church. He calls them beloved brethren. He says that he longs to see them. You know, these are words he never used with the Corinthians. <laughs> you know, there's a tenderness here. There's a longing um, that, that, and then he calls them my joy and my crown. Of all the things that he could be proud of in his apostolic ministry, he points to these guys as the crown that he would wear with great joy face to face with Jesus Christ. My beloved and longed for brethren, my beloved. And uh, the agapetos that's used there twice, the beginning of verse 1 and the end of verse 1. And uh, we can appreciate that. We recognize that it's not the dopey, sentimental, romantic type love, or it's not any kind of other uh, wishy-washy kind of churchy love that is pretty common in our, uh, in our uh, uh, emotional generation. No, it's agape love. It's, it's the belovedness of sacrificial, unconditional integrity, agape love. And uh, the objects of agape love uh, is what he's addressing there. So there's your vocabulary for agapetos. Strong's number is 27, 62 uses, and I recommend go look at every single one of them. Go look at every single one of them, see how they're used, see how uh, they are universal for born-again believers that are obviously were loved by God and loved by Christ and why He died on the cross, and they should be loved by us as we serve one another in the body of Christ. We studied it back in Philippians 2.12 in, uh, in its usage there. And uh, in particular, remember uh, the idea of a beloved son, this is fundamental. Uh, first of all, the, I mean, the, really the main use is the father and his beloved son. And so the doctrine of a beloved is pretty significant because it's, it's connected to the father and his love for Jesus Christ. But it's also used of the, uh, by the Jerusalem apostles with reference to Barnabas and Paul. And that I think is huge as the church is getting started and they're hosting their first ever pastor's conference in Jerusalem. They're trying to reconcile some problems that they're having with legalists versus grace guys and uh, Gentiles and Jews and how is this all going to mash together and, uh, and you would think that perhaps if they were arrogant men or full of themselves, if you will, that, that uh, Peter and John, these pillars would, would uh, you know, be dismissive of Paul or Barnabas. And who do these guys think they are? And yet they extend to them the right hand of fellowship and they call them beloved. In fact, Barnabas was so well received, they, they gave him the name Barnabas uh, rather than his birth name. And uh, said he was a son of encouragement and uh, he was very dear to them. And even Paul, you know, once he was done being Saul of Tarsus and trying to kill them all, they actually realized, wow, you know, here's a, here's a like-minded apostle. And he's sent to the Gentiles as we're sent to the Jews. And so that right hand of fellowship that uh, was extended there, we looked at that in Galatians a few years ago. But uh, the Jerusalem apostles called Barnabas and Paul beloved. And then 27 times the apostle Paul makes use of this word often in the vocative address to the local churches. And when you're learning your Greek uh, cases, of course, you've got nominative, accusative, genitive, dative. And then the fifth one that, that a lot of time gets overlooked is the vocative address. And this is the, the case where somebody is speaking to somebody else in the second person. And in that direct vocative address, um, more often than not, Paul calls them beloved. And so you see the, uh, the usages there.
fellow workers, and local churches in various ways. Additionally, five times in 2 Peter, especially 2 Peter chapter 3, that's the chapter that I quote uh, with reference to the new heavens and the new earth, with reference to the destruction of the present heavens and the earth, a lot of warning that comes up. Uh, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent. And uh, the usages of beloved there in verse 1, 8, 14, 15, and 17. Six times in 1 John, the book of fellowship. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And look at how many times uh, we have beloved in 1 John. Let me just grab these real quick. 1 John 2, 7. Other than the Through the Bible series, I've never taught 1 John, not as an exegetical study. It is on the short list when we finish up with Hebrews, but it's not on the short, short list. So we'll see when we get to it. But when we finish up Hebrews, I believe what I'm excited about is going to Genesis uh, on the Sunday morning, 11 o'clock hour. But anyway, keep that in prayer too. Uh, 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Is that what I'm headed for? No, I'm headed for verse 7. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which which you have heard. So there's beloved there. In 3.2, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be just like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So why does this keep getting repeated over and over and over again? Chapter 4 and verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And I think, you know, more than anything else, it's a useful term for a lot of reasons, but given the nature of the angelic conflict and given the nature of uh, the attacks that we come under as pilgrims, as strangers, as aliens, uh, since this world hates us, uh, it's nice to have a reminder every now and then that God loves us, that we are beloved, and that uh, it is uh, that we are the eternal objects of His love. And... Uh, a nice uh, counterbalance from the scripture to the other uh, influences of life that would tear us down and leave us uh, pretty low. All right, then he calls us the longed for. He calls uh, the Philippians longed for. They are beloved and they are longed for. Epipathetos and uh, Strong's number 1973. And when you're thinking about uh, what you long for, what you um, what you are thirsting for with a, with a uh, a life-saving thirst, that kind of a thing. Uh, the only time that's ever applied in the New Testament is here, but there are two uses by the church fathers in First Clement and in uh, Barnabas. And did I make those clickable? I did make those clickable. That was pretty smart. Now send back to us without delay our messengers Claudius, Ephebus, and Valerius Beto, together with Fortunatus, in peace and with joy, so that they may report as soon as possible the peace and concord which we have prayed for and long for, thirst after, desire, that we too may all the more quickly rejoice over your good order. Barnabas 1 3, 
Therefore, I, who also am hoping to be saved, congratulate myself all the more, because among you I truly see that the Spirit has been poured out upon you from the riches of the Lord's fountain. How overwhelmed I was on your account by the long-desired sight of you. So that's the expression there. Again, these aren't Scripture. We don't take them as Scripture. The church fathers are not God-breathed and inspired. But they are vocabulary usages that help us to understand the vocabulary we have in the New Testament, particularly if you're dealing with a hapax, a word that's only used once in, in the whole New Testament. And if you find that some of the church fathers are actually blessed by those passages, then they start to use those terms themselves, such as the term here. And this is uh, not surprising, actually, because uh, when you understand the nature of travel in the ancient world, when you uh, went on a journey, it could be weeks, months, or years before you came back, and uh, the the longed-for fellowship uh, would be sometimes quite delayed. It does come from the verb epipatheo, and so we, we only have the one instance of the, uh, of the adjective, but we have nine instances of the verb, and so that kind of helps us to sort out the sense of it there. In a, in a fervent, you know, it's, it's not a take-it-or-leave-it kind of, I like to have it someday kind of a thing. No, it is a, a very fervent longing that uh, really is, is pained the longer that it goes. Paul's beloved and longed-for brethren could be called the joy and crown kindred. Remember this? It never caught on like I thought it was going to catch on, but I don't know, maybe we'll see it in a book someday. But it, um, anyway, the joy and crown kindred. You could abbreviate it with Jack, okay? And the idea of the joy and crown kindred that we all should be considering, each one of us, we should be joy and crown kindred for one another as, uh, as we go through these things. This acronym may soon become a very useful in various doctrinal studies. Christians who drift from consistent local church fellowship, for example. They don't know Jack. If you're not in the fellowship, then you don't know your joy and crown kindred. And, uh, and there you have it. All right. Sorry about that. The, uh, the thing about it is, these things that, uh, that we want to learn, and these things that that, um, that we long for, they take time. And, uh, and we, can, um, we can appreciate that. So understanding doctrines and people takes time. If you're going to come to really know a person, it doesn't happen overnight. You can get a super, superficial introduction and kind of get a first impression and think you know the person. Uh, but how many times did you find out after the fact that really your first impression was totally wrong and then you feel bad about that first impression and go, wow, I'm pretty judgmental, I've got to quit doing that. And because you take the time to start to know the person better. And so that takes time. And along the way, that's true whether you're talking about doctrines or people, principles from the Word of God, and it may be that something comes across from the pulpit and your first reaction is, oh, what's that? But then you look at it again, and you look at it again, you look at it again, and then you start thinking, okay, I think that is in the Bible. I, I think that, you know, yeah, the pastor is not really the not job I thought he was, right? The Bible says that. This is what it means. And along the way, as you're getting to know somebody better, when you don't know them quite so well yet, then we are all vulnerable to misunderstandings. We're, we're uh, some partial understandings, which is actually a misunderstanding along the way. And so uh, these are, again, some of the 
things that we see in Scripture and we realize just through experience and daily life that uh, these are the kind of things that can happen. 2 Corinthians 1, 13 and 14 says, For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope that you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us. Notice that? You got part of it. You partially did understand us that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Okay, Of course he's talking to the Corinthians. It's going to take them a while. They're not going to be there quite yet. It's going to take them a while to come to that point. Joy in our brethren is derived via reasons to be proud and they are mutually reciprocal. We should have total joy and total pride in one another and the fruit that we're bearing, and the lessons that we're learning, and the service that we're rendering to Jesus Christ. And, uh, and it is mutual reciprocal. I think Third John addresses this in verses 3 and 4. I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And so what gives me joy when I hear about other local churches is not the, the cars in the parking lot or the attendance or the budget or any of that. It's uh, are they living the Word of God? Is the pastor faithfully teaching? Is the congregation living out what they're learning? There's a joy in seeing brothers and sisters walking in the truth. And so we can have uh, reasons to be proud for such things. I had lunch with Pastor Dan yesterday. I have reason to be proud because that, uh, that faithful pastor is staying faithful. And uh, appreciate that. Joy and crown kindred are the ones we long to see when angelic conflict hinders such personal fellowship. Let's face it, there's times that we just get driven. There's times that other things come up and we find ourselves in places that we'd rather not be. Paul would have rather stayed in Thessalonica, but he couldn't. And so uh, instead he sends Timothy back in there. And because Paul can't go back in there, Timothy gets to go in and have have a solo ministry, have some training opportunities, and build up some of his own experience in, uh, in those things. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. And, uh, you know, recognize it for what it is. And uh, relax about it, too, because it's out of your control. And just say, Lord, I'm, I'm where you want me to be. And uh, it's out of our control. It's not out of God's control. Uh, Satan isn't thwarting God's purpose. So uh, just relax that uh, God's got you right where he wants you. And uh, if he allows for you to return to a place that you want to be, well, then great. If not, then uh, that's also great. And, uh, and if, in fact, as in the, in the case here, since Paul was not able to go back, Timothy got to go back. And uh, that's described in this chapter here as well. So there's a, uh, a blessing, actually when you got across into chapter 3 to see the, uh, the mission of Timothy there in that regard. Crowns will be awarded in the future but the joy of attaining such crowns happens now. The joy of attaining such crowns happens now. And I can't see any evidence anywhere in the New Testament where a believer is awarded a crown uh, prior to the judgment seat of Christ. It's just that they might be reserved, they might be laid up. Uh, Paul could have confidence that it was reserved waiting for him, but um, no one actually receives such crowns until 
such time as we are face to face. Yet the joy of attaining such crowns can happen now. And Paul will speak of the Thessalonians as being his joy and his crown, just like he speaks of the Philippians being his joy or his crown. It says, um, this is First Thess 2.19, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? Notice, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming. At His coming. So it's still an anticipated crown. Even though He's looking at them and writing to them. He says, for you are our glory and our joy. All right. Therefore, on the basis of rapture doctrine, in this way, eagerly waiting as joy and crown kindred, stand firm. And that's really the main imperative of Philippians 4. Stand firm. Let me get back there. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Reflecting on rapture doctrine should create an attitudinal response. The blessed hope of an imminent departure goads us to stay rapture ready. When it says stand firm, that's another way of saying stay rapture ready. Be focused on the things above. The blessed hope of an imminent departure goads us to stay rapture ready. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, 2 Timothy 4, 8, Titus 2, 13. We should be standing firm. And God operates this way. He's always operated this way, even before the church age. Now in the Old Testament they didn't have a rapture to look forward to, but they had other things that connected to the principle of imminency and uh, so God gives this test in, uh, in a variety of contexts, in a variety of applications. Other dispensations have had similar eschatological goads. And we can understand them, we can say they're analogous to the church's application of imminency. Our application of imminency, of course, is the rapture, is the trumpet. And we, and we get that, we taught that on Sunday. That's our application of imminency. Israel had a different application of imminency. The second advent of Jesus Christ, when he says, behold, I come like a thief. When he had parables given about foolish virgins and, and, and why aren't you ready and why aren't you waiting when the king returns? And, and there's lessons that are designed for Israel and it's unfortunate that oftentimes they get conflated. They get uh, absconded with by, uh, by uh, you know, church members trying to claim Jewish promises. They're not our promises. I think we can be edified and we can learn from them because the application of imminency is the same. That is, at any moment. And, uh, and so we can, we can certainly get that. Anyway, Matthew 24, you get the Olivet Discourse, uh, Luke 2. Think about Luke 2, the imminency of these guys waiting for the birth of Jesus, right? It was imminent. And you get this old guy, Simon, just waiting to die, and he can't die until he sees the baby. That's an imminent expectation. And he was living under that imminency. Or Anna, the prophetess, and, and how many years did she live as a widow there serving the temple, waiting for the imminency of, uh, of the birth of Christ? Principles of imminency. Stand firm. Present active imperative from Staco. And uh, this was a word study we were looking at the other day, actually, with the difference between Staco and... and uh, uh, some of the other imperatives for standing and standing firm. 47.39, eight New Testament uses, stand firm. You know, the, the thing is, we've been given so much. We've been given the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. We've been given a Hebrew canon of Scripture, a Greek canon of Scripture. We've been given all these resources. The idea that 
that we would be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, the idea that we would be unstable in our, in our Christian walk. There's just no excuse for that. We should have all the stability in the world based upon the uh, certainty that we have. We have an anchor that enters within the veil, that living hope of Jesus Christ. And that's our stability that we're learning in uh, the book of Hebrews, for example. And when it says stand firm, it doesn't say stand firm in your own willpower, stand firm in your own ability, stand firm in your the greatness of your uh, capacity. It says stand firm in the Lord. It speaks to our occupation with Christ and personal submission to His will for everything that we do. In the Lord. That means we're occupied with Christ. Take your eyes off the Christ, how well are you going to do standing firm? Keep your eyes fixed firmly on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, you're going to do just fine standing firm. In fact, your test is going to be over before you know it because you were so busy looking at Jesus. Oh, is that it? The test is over now? All right, thank you, Lord. And, uh, and there we have it. Look at all those places that in the Lord shows up in Philippians. 1.14, three times in chapter 2, once in chapter 3, and then four times here in chapter 4. All of these in the Lord expressions. And uh, that's not a throwaway term. Not a throwaway term, especially when it's used, uh, what, nine times in the book. That's not a throwaway term. And so we want to make use of it as it's given. All right, two women in Philippi are urged to reconcile and they need help doing so. And um, (laughs) not to preach against women, because it could just as well have been two men in the church that needed help reconciling. It just so happens in this instance, Yodi and Seneki both happen to be women, and uh, true companion is going to help them. True companion, uh, Zizigas, I believe his name is, is going to help them uh, reconcile. Women were prominent in the founding of this church. You can go back and read that in Acts 16. You had Lydia, the seller of purple, and you had uh, she had a hospitality ministry where she had Paul and Timothy and Silas coming into her home. There were other women. There was even a slave girl that, that was featured with the, the demon possession and things. Uh, other conflict of things that happened. Uh, I won't take the time tonight to look back through Acts 16, but now there's two particular women that could potentially tear it apart. And that's the issue. If they don't fix this now, it could blow up the whole church. And that's uh, described there in this way. And, and even though they've got a past that's great, they were fellow workers they shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. You notice that in verse 3? There's a background there. Um, you know, Paul could have easily looked at a portrait of, uh, of the church from 10 years ago, like we have in the fellowship hall now, you know, and you start looking at folks and thinking, wow, you know, there's, there's water under that bridge. There's, there's, uh, there's, um, there's some blood, sweat, and tears. There's some scars. And, you, and you're looking at heroes. You're looking at uh, brothers and sisters that fought the good fight right there with you. And so he's praising them. These women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. And he's praising them. They've got a past that was on target, but presently they're just, they've got to they've live in harmony. They've got to think the same thing. Otherwise it could tear the church apart. The name Yodia means success. This is the only place where it appears. The verb, though, does have uh, four uses. Yudao, to succeed or to prosper. Syneche only appears here. means lucky. Um, we saw fortunatus earlier. That's the Latin form of this in uh, one of the uh, church fathers we read. But 
Seneca. Uh, the masculine form is Tychicus, also Eutychus, and uh, Fortunatus. Uh, all of these names with reference to uh, not just, um, you know, not, not that we think of with respect to luck or good luck or rabbit's foots or something. It's, uh, it's actually in the ancient world, uh, Fortuna was the goddess. And it was, she oversaw fortune. And, uh, and you, wanted, you wanted to be fortune's favorite, as uh, Caesar thought he was and, 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 and others. And so um, in any event, uh, it, was, it was very much part of their uh, superstitions, part of their paganism in the ancient world. And, uh, and I suspect that anyone with the name of, of Sidiki uh, or Tychicus or any of these names, I don't think a Christian would name their children this. It probably reflects the fact that their parents weren't saved yet when, uh, when they were born and, uh, and given their names. Anyway, I like Tychicus. He's a hero. He's a faithful servant. He's constantly carrying scrolls from place to place. And he's really an example of the server-minister gift. Uh, Eutychus fell out a window. I don't know if that's a gift or not, but that's he's mentioned there in Acts 20. And then Fortunatus, 1 Corinthians 16, 17. Live in harmony. Live in harmony. More than just quit fighting and get along. Think the same. Think the same. Ta auta franane. Think the same. Be like-minded. And again, it's in the Lord. In the Lord. And so um, thinking the same is not uh, follow your cult leader and think everything the pastor tells you to think. It's think, the, have the mind of Christ. And we've been having that throughout from chapter 1, chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. And uh, the fact is that Yodi and Seneca can't get along means that neither of them has the attitude in themselves that's also in Christ Jesus. And so that's the, uh, the application there. So think the same. As I said way back in the beginning when we first introduced this book, Philippians is a thinking book. And you got the verb phreneo, um, the, the verb for thinking, for, for deliberate thought at all the times that it's used in this book. It's definitely, it's a thinking book. So develop the mind of Christ, adjust your thinking to how Christ thinks. And, and it's amazing. I mean, this works in a local church. If I have Christ-like thinking and you have Christ-like thinking, we're going to get along pretty well in the, in the local church, are we not? Holds true in a marriage. The husband has Christ-like thinking, the wife has Christ-like thinking. Um, you think that's going to be a benefit to the marriage? Of course. Parents and children, in the workplace. In fact, show me any uh, human um, organization, any structure, any group, any Scrabble club or whatever, and a baseball team, if, if those people... The problem is, is they're full of people, right? And people are people. And you're going to have personality. People have personalities. And some personalities rub against other personalities in, in, a, in a very uh, friction kind of way, right? But thinking the mind of Christ can overcome all of that. If I'm thinking as Christ thinks and you're thinking as Christ thinks, then my obnoxious personality is not going to drive you up the wall. Nor will yours drive me up the wall. Okay, the two-way street. <laughs> Whatever their disagreement was, and thankfully Paul didn't go into the details on this, whatever the disagreement was, each of them is exhorted because neither of them had this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. They had different attitudes. 
That's the phrase in 315. If you have a different attitude, God will also reveal that to you. And now he's revealing it to Yodi and Sinaki in uh, a book of the Bible we're going to have forever. So, you know, you talk about feuds and how long do we talk about them? How long does, uh, does this feud, we talk about this forever because the Word of God stands for all eternity. All right. True companion, indeed true companion, verse 3. Is that really what he's saying here or is it actually Zizigus? Is it actually, should we translate it as a, as a term or should we transliterate it as a name? So he's either an unknown and unnamed man of wisdom or quite likely it's a personal name. Just like Yodia, just like Sinaki, just like Clement. Why, why is he getting all anonymous all of a sudden in a passage that he's naming all kinds of names everywhere? And so uh, I think, and, and some of the manuscript variants reflect this, is that instead of translating it indeed true companion, we should just transliterate it as indeed Zizigus. The truly named Zizigus. I ask you to help these women. And uh, if so, then we've got a marvelous parallel with Onesimus that, uh, that we have there. The only downside is that scholars have yet to find Zizigus as a known uh, personal name in ancient Greek literature. And that's just, I admit, that's a big deal. That if we've never, because we've got a lot of Greek literature out there, and if we've never encountered this name anywhere else in the world, well, okay, maybe, uh, maybe he's the only one with that name. However, there are many similar names that have the soon or the sim compound, like Syndramas, Symakos, Symphrones. Um, it's not unusual to put that soon prefix in front of a, a term and make that a proper name. And so it's not uh, irrational to think that Zizigus is, uh, is his name. Whoever the case, we'll, uh, we'll meet him when we get to heaven and we'll find out if it really was his name or not. Yodi and Sinaki were veteran struggle sharers with Paul, along with Paul, with Clement, and the rest of Paul's fellow workers. And uh, soon athleo. So they were fellow athletes, soon athleo, teammates, if you will. The idea of athleo is to compete. Athlesis is a conflict, such as we'll see in Hebrews 10.32. And so uh, in this case, though, it's the fellow struggle in the faith the faith of the gospel, the, the pistis of the euangelion, the faith of the gospel. And so uh, when it comes to evangelizing, um, it's not a spectator sport. You don't, you don't just sit back and say, well, Doug will take care of that because he's got the gift of evangelist. No, he, yes, he does have the gift of evangelist, but you're on his team. You're a fellow athlete in this endeavor. And we all should be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us in, uh, in this. So that's really quite high praise there. They're veteran struggle sharers. Clement is a very common name. Not likely the author of 1 Clement. I think there's, there's too many years in between Philippians and 1 Clement. 1 Clement was written about 95 AD. It's even older. It was written earlier than Revelation in 96 AD. Um, and one of the patristic books does not belong in the Bible. Uh, Origen and Eusebius both claim that the, the Clement that was the author of 1 Clement was this same Clement in Philippi, but I don't find that likely at all. And then the book of life. The rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What a fun book, because my name's written in there, your name's written in there. When you believe in Jesus Christ, your name is there. And uh, 
It's, uh, there's theories on the book of life. We spent some time talking about this because of the, the passages that have uh, pretty frightening uh, threats about your name being blotted out of the book of life and, uh, and those kind of references. So, um, but this is Paul's only reference. It's not a really a Pauline issue. He brings it up here, um, but uh, it's not really a, a major thing for Paul. It's referenced in Exodus and Psalms and Daniel and Luke, um, in Hebrews, Revelation, many times in Revelation. Significant here is yet another reminder that our citizenship is in heaven no matter what names are listed in the Roman colony civic registry. I think that's the big deal. Just like he did in chapter 3 when he said our citizenship is in heaven, he was, he was hitting them right where it hurts because of their pride at being a Roman colony. And so something very similar might be happening here when he says whose names are in the book of life. That's another way of saying this is the real registry that you should be concerned about where your name is written down. Because the Romans were huge on the annual census, on the annual registry. That not only was your name listed with your citizenship status, but also your economic status. Because every year you had a, you had a wealth reassessment as to your income and as to your savings, as to your, your wealth. And, and where you fell on the voting rolls, there were five different levels of voting rolls, if you were going to be in the senatorial class, or you were going to be, which was the highest, you could not remain a senator unless you had, provably have the uh, the income and the and the uh, financial portfolio to uh, to sustain that. And uh, if your family fell on hard times, you could lose your senatorial status. See, this was actually Julius Caesar's grandfather, um, that also named Julius Caesar. He was on the verge of, he was a senator, but he was on the verge of um, not being able to pass that on to his two sons. And, uh, and so he had to adopt one son out of the family, and then he had to marry his daughter to Gaius Marius for a huge fortune that allowed uh, his son and his grandson both to then become senators uh, on that basis. So all of this is just part of the history, part of the isagogical study you got to go through, isagogical study you go through to, uh, to recognize that to have your names recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life is far more significant than any Roman ledger or any census that you might otherwise be, be proud of. All right. Seven imperatives provide a practical how-to recipe for standing firm in the Lord. So yeah, you can read a command that says stand firm, uh, that's easy enough to say, well, how do I do it? How do I stand firm? And here's seven imperatives then that spell it out, I think, spell it out in uh, verses 4 through 9. In fact, the first two imperatives are a repeat because it's rejoice and rejoice again. All right? So step one is rejoice. Step two is refer back to step one. Rejoice and rejoice again. And you're not ready for step three and, and three through seven until you've done one and two properly. And uh, so we see it here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. In other words, broadcast your gentleness. Be anxious for nothing. Stop worrying. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So there's two make it knowns. Your gentleness must be made known to men and your requests must be made known to to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally then, 
brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, this is a long introduction to a command, whatever is, whatever is, whatever is, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, here we go, here's the command, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. Where do you find your mind goes when you daydream? Where do you find your mind goes when you're just, where does it dwell? Is it dwelling on the Word of God? Is it dwelling on Jesus Christ? Or is it dwelling on Scrabble tiles? Is it dwelling on baseball scores? Is it dwelling on earthly stuff? Okay? And I'm not saying you can't think about those things occasionally. You know, you can follow current events. You can pay attention to politics. Just don't let your mind dwell there. Check it out. Visit. Don't dwell there. Because where you dwell should be the Word of God. That should be where your mind spends the the bulk of its endeavors, the bulk of its time. All right. So the first two imperatives are rejoice and rejoice. The first two imperatives are rejoice and rejoice. In fact, he's given it previously. In fact, he has no problem repeating it. He says uh, to write the same thing again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard to you. And uh, all it is is really ink with a scroll and, and a quill. Um, what would Paul have done if he had, had uh, cut and paste, you know? If he could have just done uh, Control-C, Control-V, 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 Control-V. He probably would have done it a lot in, uh, because he loved to repeat himself. He loved to restate these things. Paul has no problem repeating it. You know, when God commands us to rejoice, he doesn't make it optional. It's not a suggestion. He doesn't say, if you feel like it. He says, rejoice, whether you want to or not. Adjust your thinking so that you're rejoicing in the Lord. You're not grumbling in your problem. It's not problem-free rejoicing, but testimony to God's grace and resounding to Christ's glory. When it says rejoice in the Lord, it doesn't mean you're problem-free. It doesn't mean that uh, you you don't have more biopsies coming up and more health tests and different things to check out. You probably have all kinds of problems, but you can still rejoice because it's in the Lord. Testimony to God's grace and resounding to Christ's glory. So Matthew 5.12, James 1.2, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. 1 Peter 1, 6-8, it's not a strange thing that's happening to you. 1 Peter 4.13, see, if you're waiting to, have, to be problem-free before you start rejoicing, give that up now. Okay, because you have, when are you going to be problem free? And if you're waiting for that circumstance so that you can, uh, you can then truly rejoice, uh, you've missed the whole point of the endeavor. And you'll never be problem free. You've got a big problem right there in the fact that you think you're not going to have problems. So rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. The third imperative is a passive imperative with a reminder of the Lord's proximity. Be so gentle that all humanity can't help but know it. And then the reminder, the Lord is near. Be so gentle that all humanity can't help but know it. You know, what do people know about you? And what are they surprised when they find out about you that they should have known all along? Wow, they were a believer? That's a surprise, okay, to a lot of people, okay? After Gary Williams went to heaven, I got a call from one of his old shipmates in the Navy because he saw the obituary about Gary. And uh, he called, he said, is this the church where Gary Williams was, was a member? And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, 
Was he really saved? <laughs> yes, sir. He was really saved. And he was really a deacon. And I, and I love him to this day. And uh, so you have things like that. But uh, gentleness. Let your gentle, gentle spirit or gentleness be known to all men. And if they don't know it, that's a problem. And uh, so we have a passive imperative. The, um, yeah, epiakes, epiakes for gentle. It's not the prautes. It's not the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. That's prautes. But it is uh, epiakes used five times. Um, 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, the qualifications of an elder. Titus 3.2, James 3.17, 1 Peter 2.18. It's not priorities, but it's linked together with priorities in 2 Corinthians 10.1. And uh, Vine had a good article on that. Gentleness. And you know, what an example we have in our Savior. Um, don't confuse. I think sometimes our culture confuses gentleness with weakness, that somehow you're a pushover, that uh, you're not a real man if you're not, if, you know, gentleness is viewed as a, as a, a detriment. And, uh, you know, when the Creator God of the universe is tenderly leading the, the nursing lambs, uh, gently folding them in his breast. That's, that's a tenderness. And uh, that's a gentleness. And uh, I don't mind imitating my Savior. I'm commanded to imitate my Savior. Let it be known. Eris passive imperative of gnosko. Now they're not going to epinosis this. They're not going to wait to this. They're not going to have the full knowledge of this. But they should at least have the factual data, the information uh, related to your gentleness. Passive tense for all men. All right. I like passive imperatives. The fourth imperative. Let's see. Am I going to make this? The nearness of the Lord is yet another indication of rapture imminency. The Lord is near. That's not only in a spatial sense of, of proximity, but in a time sense. His coming is near. Another indication of rapture imminency. Many, many references on that. Including, by the way, notice Hebrews 10.25. Stay tuned. Hebrews 10.25. We didn't get there this week and, and I've got a missionary report coming up next week so it's not going to be until the 30th that we're going to have a chance to look at Hebrews 10.25. Um, not to neglect the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. That's a rapture reference. And I can prove that. We'll be dealing with that uh, in a couple of weeks. Imminency. The fourth and fifth imperatives, they're twin absolutes within one of the greatest prayer passages in all of Scripture. So we've got twin absolutes. Paul likes doing this. He likes saying, don't A, but B, right? And when he says don't A, there's an absolute attached to that, like don't worry, and then, or in nothing, right? And then there's the positive, but in everything. So there's the in nothing and the in everything. These are twin absolutes. So be anxious for nothing. Not even one thing. Paul is fond of the in nothing and in everything contrast. He uses it in a lot of passages including 2 Corinthians 6 verses 3 and 4. giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. 
in much endurance, in afflictions and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and so forth. So when he says, give no offense in anything, what does that leave out? And then when he says, but in everything, what does that leave out? He's just made universal statements twice, and he loves doing this. The in nothing, in everything contrast. So uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything. So if you find there's something that you're anxious about, you're probably sinning twice. Because you're, you're sinning by being anxious, and are you really praying about it? In faith? As, just surrendering it to the Father? That's our blessing. For nothing be anxious. Talking about worry in the bad sense, work concern in the good sense. In everything, make God to know your requests. Make Him know. Inform Him. Cause Him to know. And what an idiom. What an expression. Because God's omniscient. What can I tell God that He doesn't already know? Everything I need, He knows I need before I even ask. And yet the imperative is, make Him know. Make Him know everything. Don't be anxious for anything. Make Him know everything. That's comprehensive. Make Him know. And and even for the omniscient God, you can still be caused to know something that you already know, but you're caused to know something in a different way. You're caused to know something by a different mechanism, by a different means. See? So I know that um, my, uh, my children love me. I know that because why? Well, because I say that or because uh, they said Happy Father's Day on Sunday or, or whatever. So I know that. I know that already. Why do they have to say it again? They know, you know, or when, uh, when, my, when my son takes the trash can out to the street, now I know it in an experiential way. Now I know it, right? And wives the same way. You know your husband loves you because he tells you I love you, but then he brings flowers home. Now you know it a different way. You know it through another mechanism. You know it through another expression. You know it through another channel. And it's good to have multiple ways to know things. All right. So even though God's omniscient and He knows what's bugging you, go ahead and make Him know anyway through the channel of prayer, through the the privilege of being able to lay it before Him and not be anxious about it. Make your requests known. Used 24 times for information conveyed to ignorant recipients. Used only once for human beings conveying requests to the all-knowing, all-wise God. So it stands out of the 25 uses that uh, Norenzo has. All right, well, we're not going to get to this. So now's the question. Do I spend a second session reviewing this? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) All right, which might delay Colossians uh, a week, but that's all right. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the blessings, Father. And as we're being reminded, there was such a a content that, uh, that you sent to us through this text, and I thank you for, and I thank you for brothers and sisters that study to show themselves approved, that they live to learn so that they can learn how to live. And I just thank you and praise you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.